When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. podcast, a weekly show dedicated to winning in entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Ginger Birkenbuehl. I'm the CEO of Burt Creative, a leadership brand strategy and visual identity agency dedicated to helping scale brands and assist with their adaptability with the market. On my show, you get to eavesdrop in on intimate conversation with business leaders and inspired entrepreneurs designed to give you tips and strategies so your own business can thrive. Subscribe and join me each week for laughter, inspiration, and honest stories. Welcome back to my show, The Honest Field Guide Podcast. I am your host, Ginger Birkenbuehl. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining me today. I always say this, you could be listening to any podcast in the world right now, but you're choosing to listen to mine. If you're a new listener to my show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or search on Google, The Honest Field Guide Podcast or on Spotify Podcasts, where you can listen to my show right from your browser on any device, no subscription required. Share my podcast with your friends too. The more people that hear my show, the better for my guests. And if you could please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify Podcasts, I would be grateful. And if you would share my show on LinkedIn, that would be even better. I am really excited today because typically I have a long sort of soliloquy around why I have someone on my show. And I think I'm not going to do that this time because I really want to get right to the conversation with this amazing designer, creative and leader in the United States. Her name is Doreen Lorenzo. And I will just say that the reason I know Doreen is that she interviewed me a while back for an amazing article as part of her Designing Women series with Fast Company Magazine. And I was so honored and excited to have somebody of Doreen's stature asking me questions about my career and how it's been successful and how I've managed to do the things I've done in my lifetime. And I'm not a celebrity. I'm just an everyday creative strategist, brand advisor. And I was just so excited to have this conversation take place. And I will say that since I've had this conversation with Doreen and since my article with her was published, my interview, it's completely transformed my business and my professional brand because of Doreen. I mean, honest to goodness, like she is someone that you must know. So I'm going to read her bio really quickly. Doreen Lorenzo is a successful leader of global creative firms. As the former president of Frog Design and Quirky, 
She has advised companies on design and innovation issues for decades. In 2016, she started the Center for Integrated Design at the University of Texas at Austin. The success of that program led her in 2017 to be appointed Assistant Dean of the New School of Design and Creative Technologies. It has since become the fastest growing school in the College of Fine Arts. She is a co-founder of Mobile Video Insights from Vidlet, as well as a board member and advisor to several other companies. Seven years ago, she became a columnist for Fast Company Design, writing a monthly column called Designing Women. Doreen was honored that Texas Monthly profiled her as one of 15 innovators reshaping Texas. Doreen, welcome to my show. Thank you, Ginger. I just want to say all I do is bring out what people are doing and your success is your success. I just write about it. I love it. I know. But, you know, it's not easy to write. And it's not easy to interview. It takes a certain, I think, self-awareness in order to get the best out of people. I mean, I think that's important. So I feel like you are able to bring that. And it made a difference for me. And it gave me some confidence that I thought, wow, I mean, I'm a pretty confident person. You know, you asking me questions and having it show up all over online on Google was amazing for me. So I want to first understand a little bit about your upbringing, where you grew up. And I always talk about this because a lot of times people sometimes forget how our small experiences as small children have had huge impacts on our lives as adults. So I'm just curious, where did you grow up? And were you in private schools? Were you both of your parents artists and designers? What was going on when you were little? I grew up in New York City in Queens in a place called Glendale, which is a little community. I came from very humble parents who were not at all artists, but were very devoted to their children. And my father's true belief was education was the way out of any sort of poverty. So they really put all of their efforts behind making sure that their three children, I was the youngest, I have two older brothers, were all educated. That was a big portion of their whole life. They just wanted their children to be educated. My mother, who was the oldest of eight children, had a sister, and she was the artist, and she was unmarried, a bohemian. She was way before her time. She was an opera singer. She was a writer. She was a music lover. So she would take all of her nieces and nephews, and I happened to be the recipient of a lot of it, to all sorts of creative endeavors. And she really exposed me and opened my eyes to art and creativity. And so I always generated myself. I was always geared towards going down the creative side. My two older brothers were physics majors in college, and one went on to be a doctor, one went on to be a lawyer. And I was like, I'm just going down the creative side. And I had the most wonderful parents who said, okay, great. And never once tried to stop me or talk me out of it or tell me not to do that. They had faith and belief. My dad in particular always said, you can do whatever you want. You will be able to achieve whatever you want. So just keep at it. You know, I was foolish enough to believe that. So a lot of what I did was I blindly went into things and maybe that was a good thing. I did read that you said your parents let you do that. Whatever that is, does it seem like parents now don't really let their kids do that? You're leading at one of the most prominent, prestigious art and design schools in the country. But to raise a child as a free spirit, which is what it sounds like they did for you, is pretty remarkable. Did you know at the time that it was remarkable? I mean, you just thought, this is normal. This is life. Yeah, I didn't know it at the time. I didn't know that I had a wonderful family. Like I came from no trauma. You know, I had a terrific 
loving family. When I went away to college and I started meeting people and realized what other people's lives were like, I think that gave me a lot of empathy towards people and understanding of what was going on. So I was always very grateful. I never had a contentious relationship with my parents, which was interesting because oftentimes people go against their parents and they fight them. I never did. If I had a show, they would go to the show. Whatever I did, they were 100% there. What I see today, a lot of parents are much more controlling and there's a lot of helicopter parents, even in college. We have 650 students in our program, so we have a lot of students that are doing their creative thing, but there's a lot of students that take our classes on campus that say their parents won't allow them to go into the creative field. They want them to be in accounting or they want them to be in engineering, which are great, but boy, for all of you listening and for you, Jinja, you know this, when that creative spirit is in you, it's hard to suppress. It's really hard to suppress. Yeah, and it'll come out eventually. So I just think about experiencing my own children right now. So the pandemic has made some significant changes in how kids are growing up now or how they're coming of age. When I was coming of age, my mother didn't know what the heck was going on. She didn't see anything. It's a good thing. I'm glad she didn't see the things <laughs> were happening with me. And I wish I could unsee some of the things that I'm seeing with my own children. I'm just sort of curious for you. You didn't have helicopter parents. Your parents raised you to be a free spirit and you didn't know you were a free spirit or you were raised that way for a long time. Did you know when you were really little that you were going to be a creative person? You just said that two of your brothers were physics majors, for God's sakes. I mean, that is a whole nother level of brain power and intelligence. And how old were you when you realized, you know what, I think I'm creative. I was probably in high school because everything I did in high school, I was creative. I was a theater kid. I worked on the yearbook. I took photos. I mean, I was that creative person, but I was always the creative kid in elementary school too. But I went to a Catholic school, K through eight, and found it to be very stifling and wanted out. And so I went to a big public school in New York City which was eye-opening for me because I got to meet a lot of different people and people that were not like me. And I liked that. I really gravitated towards that. And then what was I going to do in college? I applied to be a theater major. And so I majored in theater in college. So wait a which- minute, wait a minute. Back up a little bit. You went from high school with being around a lot of diverse people and diverse experiences, and then you went to college and became a theater major. I mean, how does that happen? I feel like in high school, you must have gotten something that told you I want to be on stage. Yeah, I mean, I was in all the plays. I was always cast in all the plays. Um, you, you know, were? I took a lot of drama, yeah. I was like never cast in a play. I always was cast in the play. I love that. I wouldn't say I was the lead in every play, but I played a lot of leading roles. It was fun. It was interesting when I got to college and I majored in college, what I began to realize quickly was I was better behind the scenes than I was in front. When I got to college, the performers were just much better than me. And I thought about the drive that you'd have to do. And I realized it wasn't internal, but I was really good at making stuff happen. The other thing, there was this thing called film and video that was happening. And I started to work at the radio station. I started to get involved and I loved that side of it. When I graduated from college, I went to graduate school and I went to graduate school in communications with an emphasis in film and video. And I learned so much. I mean, I learned so much about storytelling and really just collaboratively working on a team together because everything you do there You have to really like that. And my expertise became, how do you make this creativity come to life? And so that's really always been my background is how do you take creativity and turn it into something that's tangible or help the creative people do that? To this day, that's why I do what I do. That's my joy. 
just sat through a presentation of somebody that's applying for a professorship here. And I was just like, this is a creative person, blown away by what this person showed. And that gives me inspiration. It's interesting. You skipped over high school and I do the same. I did not come to the realization of myself until college. That's when I realized what was happening. And I think some other young people, they discover themselves a little sooner than I did. I feel like that's what you're telling me a little bit. Like you sort of learned and emerged and said, oh, I get it. I get it now. Would that be fair to say? I mean, like every kid's different, right? I mean, everybody's different. I mean, high school, your peer group is important. What your friends and what you do. I always knew that I was going to go to college. I was going to go on probably to graduate school. That was such a big part of my parents' desires. And I wanted to do that. So I enjoyed myself and I got to do the things I wanted to do. And I was a very good student, but I didn't work very hard in high school. I worked much harder in college. That's what I'm hearing. I'm the same. I feel like that's how it was with me. Like, I feel like high school, I don't know if I wasn't challenged or what was going on. I don't know what happened. But in college, I really locked in. And again, you find things that you love. And I think that's part of the evolution. And that's part of what we try to do here at the universities. Those students that are creative that haven't found the thing is to help them find what they really like. Because if you're passionate about something and then you feel like you're part of something, you know, it's just better. That's just easier as you go on. And you have this students. I was never going to be the sorority kid. That just was not who I was. But I found a great group of people and it's really funny till this day I've remained friends with them. I was just going to ask you that you took the words right out of my mouth. If you still have relationships that you developed in college as you were deciding you were going to be doing or who you were. I still talk to my friends I went to elementary school with. Then I have friends from high school. A lot of those friends are similar from us. And then I have friends from college. I really love that. I love it. I feel like my mom is similar. My family's from the East Coast as well. And that just seems like a different environment. You know, I feel like we moved around a lot more than other people from other parts of the country, other generations, because I just think to myself, I don't remember anybody from elementary school. (laughs) But, you know, we moved a lot. I mean, and everybody I was with was also moving a lot as well. I really appreciate that. So I want to move forward a little bit to your corporate career right before your academic career. So I remember when I was in college learning and knowing about frog design. And I don't know if that was your first job or what order of working was. I'd like to understand what it was because I do want to get to the frog design space because that was a transformative part of your career. But it was also a big deal for me as I was learning about frog design. But can you talk a little bit about after you graduate from college and you got a master's degree, which is amazing. I don't know why you did that. Maybe you can actually talk about why you got a master's degree because I thought about it and I thought, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to school any longer. And I went out and started working. Maybe you could talk a little bit about your transition to the master's degree that you obtained. And then also, what was your first job out of school as a creative person? Sure. I'll try to condense it. It's a 40-year career, so I'll try to to condense it. 
<laughs> You're like, Ginger, we don't have enough time for this. We can't. I'm just like. I really wanted to learn about film, video, audio. I just okay. wanted to learn more about that. And it was wonderful. I got out of graduate school and I went to go work in the advertising department of a now defunct department store in Boston because I was at Boston University called Jordan Marsh, cutting commercials and doing wonderful things. And it was super fun, but it snowed in Boston and I decided I wanted to go out West. Yeah, but it snowed in New York too. I know, but I never really liked the snow. So I decided I was going to go out West and I ended up in San Francisco and I spent pretty much the next 12 years just doing freelance producing work on everything from independent movies. I did a ton of work for Apple Computer. At that time, Apple was doing these huge films, producing those, doing my own stuff. And it was super fun. And then in 1995, I had gotten married. I had two little babies. My husband decided that he wanted to go back to graduate school. He was a lawyer and he wanted to go to graduate school and study American studies. He was really interested in music and quit his law degree. And so he applied to a bunch of schools. And when he was accepted at pretty much every school he applied to, we looked about like where would a good place for us to live. And there was a professor he wanted to work with in Austin, Texas. And we ended up in Austin, Texas. Well, in 1995, there was no film industry here. There was no video industry here. It was dead. And I had to figure out what to do because we had moved to Austin. He was a full-time graduate student. I had two little kids. They were one in four. And I was like, ooh, what do we do? There was a thing called a newspaper. I opened up the newspaper and there was a headline that said, to those? <laughs> yeah, what happened to those that said, Macintosh clone license granted to power computing. They've opened an office here. Now I had done all that work with Apple. So I picked up, I called the operator to get, or information to get the phone number. I'm just telling you, this is in the way wow. back machine and called them up and the CEO answered. And I told him my background. He said, come on up. And he hired me that day. Wow. And he hired me to run marketing. I had no skills, by the way, to run marketing, but he hired me to run marketing. What was the environment like for women then? I mean, were you the only one there? What was happening? Like, I feel like you're describing like mad men era, but you were not a secretary. You were like creating things. No, it's a little later. This is the 90s, but you still had babies. You didn't talk about it. I didn't have yeah. pictures of kids out there. I mean, I worked super hard, it was crazy. And I was balancing this, but it wasn't like, I'm sorry, I have to go home and get my kid. It was just, it was hard. And the web was just starting. And I got this idea to sell computers online. I hired this company, seven guys. They were in Austin, Texas. They had done this thing called My Yahoo because somebody, you know, who knew how to do software development and do software user interface? That was a new thing. This was 1996. I hired them. In the midst of working with them, they were bought by Frog Design. And so I got to know the owners of Frog. In 1997, Steve Jobs came back to Apple and he said licensing is dead. And he basically bought power computing. And so my opportunity was go work at Apple or do something else. And then I get a call from the founder of Frog, which is a guy named Hartman Esslinger. And in his half English, half German said, licensing is dead. Come work at Frog. I want you to start a digital business. I want you to start this digital practice. That word existed? Digital business, digital practice? Well, it didn't really exist. I mean, what nobody- was the word? What was the question? Well, what he was doing, see, they were a physical product company. They had designed the Macintosh. They had done the Sony work, Louis Vuitton. They were a physical product company, but Hartman's very insightful. One of the really true visionaries I've ever worked with and really understood that software now was becoming part of an interface, which meant that as you designed a physical product, maybe you didn't need knobs because you were doing touch screens or okay. whatever. So 
the way that you were going to design products was going to be different. So he wanted to invest in that. But at the same time as I was coming in, now this web thing was starting to take off. So for me, it was catching the wave. The software guys had been doing CD-ROMs at the time for trade shows, but we caught the wave. There was about, I'd say about 40 or 50 people working at Frog at the time. When I left Frog, there were 1,100. So I became president of digital. Two years later, I became COO. And in 2004, I became president of Frog Worldwide. So that was my trajectory onward and really took the company, had 12 offices, people all over the world, and really grew it to balance what physical, digital brand was. So it was a lot of fun. It was a great ride. You know, I think about women in leadership and you just described that you hired a company that had seven guys. I don't know how much has changed since then in terms of the environment, the corporate environment, the technology environment, the software environment, IT, cloud environment. There's a lot of guys. What was it like then though? Because you had children. I don't think social media existed back then. So you're toiling in the background not even having a platform to show other women that you're out here doing this to bring more women along. Like you didn't have an opportunity to do what we're doing right now, which is get visibility. I mean, were you the only woman there and did you notice it or were you just nose the grindstone? I got to get this job done and make this money. Like what was happening? I was really fortunate. So the founder of, of Frog Design married a woman named Patricia Roller who became his co-CEO at the time and when I met her, she had just had her second baby. They had childcare in the office. So they were very unique. And I love that about it. By the way, she and I are the ones who founded Vidlet together. So we have been friends for all these years. So it was really different. And there were women. Honestly, though, it was hard to find female designers. Women did certain tests. There were women that were producers and there were women in finance and we really worked hard to bring in female designers. And when you talk about designers, just want to clarify, I mean, you're referring to industrial designers versus what kind of designers? Well, industrial user interface designers, okay. brand designers. I mean, Frog had that strategy. We had, as we grew, it got better, but we really went out to do that. When I was running the company, when I became president, I really, my COO was a woman. The head of finance was a woman. Did you inherit that? Mm-mm. people I brought in. You brought in the women. There was a balance. There was a balance of power at the top. And I think it showed. In today's environment, it's very difficult for women to get in a position where they can actually have influence the way you're describing. It's harder. And some women are too afraid to step out and advocate for other women for a lot of reasons, which we can have a whole other conversation around that. But I'm just trying to understand the intentionality of what you're doing. I had a conversation recently with Christy Hefner, who's the former head of Playboy Enterprises. She's one of the longest serving CEOs of a public traded company in America. And there's not many women that have that opportunity. And I want to understand from you, what was your strategy and methodology around it? Because we need to be doing more of that now. And it seems like it's becoming harder and harder to be realized. I agree. It's becoming harder and harder. And honestly, I can't believe I'm still having this conversation. I know. I know. I'm like, what is going on? It's incredible. That's the part that really is probably the most difficult for me is that we're still having this conversation. We know there's enough research that women-led organizations are far more successful. We know that women who run publicly traded companies are far more successful. We know this. And part of, for me, is design is about empathy, right? We know that. Now, empathy has become this, but 
design by its nature is really understanding humans. So it's human-centered design. And so women are very good at that. It's an innate knowledge. Men are getting better at it because we're teaching it. We teach it in school now, or trying to at least. But women, you know, are much more innate at that. And so if you bring women into an organization like a design organization, it's going to work better. And for us, it did. We had a fair balance of women and men. They worked cooperatively and there was no BS. Like we didn't tolerate getting run over. That was not allowed. And certainly it comes from the top in many respects. So if your behavior is such that that's what it's about, that's what it's about. So for me, it was healthy. And listen, no company is not without problems. Some ex-frogs listen going, no, it wasn't like that, I'm sure. But by and large, people will tell you from that era, it was a great collaborative organization where people worked together and we didn't look at gender. We looked at success. We used to call it the island of misfit toys because you got to think a little differently to come up with some of the ideas and solutions. And so I think what you see in the corporate world is they're afraid of that. They're still afraid of that. As long as we're beholden to quarterly profits and recording quarterly numbers, you're never going to get this type of behavior. You're not going to get this type of innovation. You're more of a slave driver because you're operationalizing everything. You're not inventing or innovating. Yeah, it sounds like you put a lot of design thinking methodologies to your recruiting policies and your recruiting process and ran the ship, which is fantastic. I also have to say that you're also we're working within European culture. And even now, there's much more of a friendly environment for families in some countries in Europe, right? I mean, isn't that partially what you experienced as well? Absolutely. There's 100%. I mean, as we opened our offices across the world, I remember when we opened our office in Milan and Petter Design went out on maternity leave, she was out for a year. That what? was the law. A year? Yeah, a year. And she came back to work? Came back to work. It was like such a beautiful thing. Wow, yeah. But you're right. I mean, it was different culture. And you're like, what, what have we done to ourselves? So I think that some companies are doing that. Some of the younger tech companies, I think, try to deploy those methods or that have a global footprint as well, because they're dealing with global culture, which is different than just you're an American-centric sort of experience. I love your sort of ascension into frog. It sounds intentional, but it also sounds like you were in the right place at the right time. And you somehow were able to have the right conversations and present yourself in the right way that you engendered trust very quickly. And I want you to talk a little bit about that because again, when I think about women in corporate spaces, and I definitely say this when it comes to black women and brown women in corporate spaces, you really have to work hard to get people to trust you. So what was that like? And maybe you can even talk a little bit more about some of the successes you brought to Frog Design, because that company, you know, it's a transformative design leadership and thought leadership. I almost want to say it's more than the design. It was like a think tank in some ways. But can you talk a little bit about what it took for you and why were you so trusted? What happened? How did you create that? Well, it's the same principles I use now when people talk about innovation or wanting to transform organizations. You got to build trust through breadcrumbs. You got to be successful at what you do. So talk is one thing. Talk is great. Ideas are terrific. What's the execution of those ideas? 
And how do we keep that going so that we can stay successful? And so I think what happened is Frog is I would take on projects and take on responsibilities and was just successful at them. And I would incorporate team building and bring in interesting people. Did you have mentors? I mean, you were not a woman on an island, right? Were you or were you? Maybe you were. I mean, like, how did you figure this out? No, I mean, I had the founder's wife and we were very close and she was co-CEO. So I had a lot of people to talk to and I have others. The closest people I worked to, the designers and stuff, they were pretty good and they were helpful too. They might've been men, but they were also helpful and they wanted to see us successful. But my goal was not about my ascension. And I think maybe that's the difference. I never thought about the next job I was going to have. What I thought about was what good was I going to do and how was I going to make this more successful? For me, it always has been, and it's still the case now, how do I build a culture of creativity? How do I make people be creative? I'm only going to be successful if everybody's creative. And so the job is how do you build that culture of creativity? And sometimes it's the things you don't think about. Let's make sure that all the HR needs are taken care of. Small companies often don't have this. So let's make sure all the HR needs. I don't want people to worry about that. What are we doing with IT systems? Let's make sure that people are not having to deal with their computer system. Let's create a culture of creativity where people can do the job that they were meant to do. And we take care of that. And we create this collaboration and we celebrate it. That's a good thing. That's important. And so I think that was always my goal. And we didn't win on everything. But by and large, if you understand people and you empathize with people, and when you go in a different direction, they trust you, you know? So it was building a lot of trust with people and with the organization. And the business proved it. The numbers proved it. We were a very successful company and that showed. So today, 2023, post-pandemic, where women are, unfortunately, especially older women that have been working in the field for a while, they're disconnected from some of the younger women that are coming into the space. They're not as in person because there's still a lot of virtual work from home. And there's a lot of benefits to work from home. And there are some disadvantages. And the disadvantage that I believe exists, it really relates to how do you help women get to where Doreen Lorenzo took her career if there's not an opportunity to have these collaborative human connected in-person moments. Now you are leading one of the most tremendous prestigious design schools in the country. What strategies would you suggest that women should be thinking about or intentional about to still be able to move forward in their careers and make it? I see this problem because you're describing an amazing life and an opportunity to make it and to then now have a point in your career where you can have some success and look back and have comfort and lead other women to that same place. What ideas do you have for what we need to do to help younger women? Women have to help women. Yes, we do. No doubt. We have to support each other. We have to help each other. And then women have to help others. When you say others, what do you mean? Men. Everyone. Okay. Young people. Anybody who knows me, you know, I talk to people. You do, Doreen. I always will give my ear to somebody. I might not be able to help everybody, but I'll give my ear to somebody You've got to pay it forward because it comes back in space to everybody. You know, it really does. It comes back and you're making a better world. And if you're making a better world, it's good for everybody. So I think part of it is get out of yourself. We talked a lot about the generation. And look, we know a lot about Gen Z and what's coming up. There's a lot of, you know, me part of it. There's a lot of isolation from social media. 
So step outside your box, collaborate. That's why so much of our work that we do at the university is around collaboration because we're trying to teach these students really what the benefit is that you get when you put all these smart people together. And we want people to see that benefit. Being alone has its benefits when maybe you're trying to think or write. But at some point, having ideas and bouncing ideas off of people gives you inspiration and then you got to go execute. So I think part of it is just supporting each other. That's the easiest place to start, but supporting everybody. I just don't think we should think about ourselves as being isolated. What are some ideas that you could share for women that are in the design field? I feel like we age out quickly because of children and other things. You didn't. I didn't because I have my own company. You did transform and you're in academia now, but What are some of the things that we could be helping young women understand before they even enter this field? What are the cautionary tales? Just know that this is the way it is, or this is what you need to do, or this is how you have to think about it before they make the decision to jump into design. And I want to say design in the big scope of design. I'm not just saying branding, marketing, advertising, industrial, just in general, women in design. Well, design is creative field. So creativity by its nature brings commentary. And so if you're going to present a creative idea, 95% of the time, people are going to have comments about it. You know, what we try to teach our students, what I try to tell women, be confident in your decision making. There is never a wrong answer. There's never a wrong answer in design because everybody looks at the problem a little differently. So there's not a wrong answer particularly. But if you do your insights and you really understand the audience and what the problem is that you're trying to solve for, chances are you have a pretty good answer. So be confident in your explanation, be confident in the decision process that you're making. That's 95% of getting a design completed. That somebody says, okay, I'm going to give you the money to go do that, is that they believe that you have the confidence to do that. If you waffle and you waver, don't do that. So I tell women is be confident, be confident when you do your presentations, be confident when you tell people why. It's sometimes a little disconcerting for people because they don't think that's where the problem is. I think that's where the problem lies is the confidence that women and young people have in explaining their ideas. And how do you take that into consideration with cultural differences? So when I work with younger women to help mentor them in their career, there are challenges when, you know, first generation immigrant families, for example, or cultures where women are not encouraged to be the breadwinner. They're not encouraged to speak up necessarily. And there are women that come into the space coming from that culture, but it still inhibits them in school and in their careers. What about that? And I get on these conversations all the time about this. If I'm on a group call with women from different cultures, I always sit back and I say, man, you know what? I am so different and they are so different. We are all so different that we have so much that we're dealing with from our upbringing, which is why we talked earlier about this, that I cannot expect my level of confidence and my suppression of any fear I have to project confidence so I can get the thing I need, that is not something that every single woman can manage. How do you even overcome that? What do you look at? Who do you get inspiration from to get better? That's why you support each other. That's I'm going to get back to what I said is women supporting women, letting them see what's possible. And I don't think you're going to get transformation overnight. But all we want people to do is take little baby steps, small wins, Did you answer a question? Did you ask a question? Did you show your design? Did you defend your design? Those are small wins for young people, particularly people who come from a culture where they've never had to do anything like that. 
They want to be in this field. And so we want to give them the best tools to be in this field so that they can be successful. And they recognize that. And they feel good about it because when they do those things and they're like, okay, yeah, that sounds great. You're like, whoa, okay, you said yes. All right, that's amazing. And for me, really, it's those skills of confidence building. And sometimes, again, it's baby steps. I always tell everybody, please don't use the word disruption in business. (laughs) Why? (laughs) What's wrong with that word? Nobody wants your business to be disrupted. That's true. That's true. Yeah. They think they do, except when you go in there, like, I'm going to disrupt everything. It's, oh my God, are you kidding me? You're like, going to cause headaches for me. So what you want to show people are those small wins. Because what happens with the small wins, they're growing bigger and bigger, and then the snowball happens. And so with women in particular, who tend to have less confidence, do little things, build up that confidence. And when somebody shuts you down, think about at that moment, what are you going to do? and try something else and see how that works. And I've had more young women tell me, oh my God, I stood up for myself and it was great. It does feel good. And it feels good also when you stick up for yourself, when other women and men and others recognize that you've done it and support you in what you've done. I mean, that also is important. I'm tired of the same old silly small talk. I'll never walk the walk, but that's all right. So you're talking about things that have to start early in life. I had a conversation recently on LinkedIn, a LinkedIn audio chat, and I was talking to an engineer, former engineer at Google, who started off his life in Compton and made his way to Google and became one of the most successful engineers at that company who happens to be black. And my question was, what do we need to do to get more black students in the pipeline for engineering? And he was talking about not only does it need to start the family, but it's got to start very, very young. What do you think we need to do to get more people, more young people involved in the creative spaces? And earlier you mentioned there are families that don't want their children to go into art because they don't think they're ever going to make money. Well, I'm here to tell you that now in this environment, especially with artificial intelligence, STEAM, which is science, technology, engineering, art, and math, is probably a guarantee that you're going to have a sustainable career. But there is a knowledge gap in some communities where they're like, you're going to do what and be an artist? How is that going to make you money? What do we need to do? Maybe this is a policy question. Maybe this is higher level, like this is outside of conversation with a parent that comes in during a parent-teacher conference or during a recruiting session at a high school. What do we need to do to get more creative thinkers? Because Doreen, your mind and your thinking is powerful and there are people like you out there that have your mind and your thinking and they were put on a successful path, but they could have a more effective path for humanity if they had gone in the creative thinking strategy art world. So can you talk about that? Because this is a struggle. This is like a... (laughs) This is a struggle. And there's no easy answer. There's no easy answer because now that I'm in education, you look at the education system and there's a couple of things that are going on. One is by the time they get into fourth grade, we're taking the critical thinking skills out. We're testing them. So it becomes multiple choice and we're not saying, hey, think and solve problems. People are creative. Kids are creative. And so their creativity might go in dance and music. I mean, it might go art, different ways, cooking, 
So we have to bring back more of the critical thinking skills, more of the team and collaboration and less about me and also the egalitarian that everybody's a winner. That doesn't work. We're also in many, 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 many schools across the country really diminishing art and music. And we know, I mean, there's so many studies done about what art and music does to students in terms of their passions and igniting them. So from my perspective, the best that we could do is we go into a lot of the high schools and we even tell them that there's this thing called design. You know, we run summer camps so that kids could go to summer camps. We're trying to expose them to a world that's different. I mean, I love it when I hear this all the time. It's like, I could major in that. Like I could go to school and learn that. So did you do this at the University of Texas, Austin? Did you yeah. implement this program that you're describing where you're going to the high schools with the summer camps? We have a wonderful recruiter. I mean, he's an amazing guy. And he goes into these high schools. He just talks and we bring kids. We have UT Day. I mean, we try really hard and we have. I mean, the diversity factor in our school, 68% of our students identify as non-white, which is a big change you know, because our program's so big, it's going to change the industry, right? As they get out and they become leaders in the industry, it will change. And that's the whole perception here because we need everybody's voice to be speaking, but it's not easy. One program, one school, it's not easy. I mean, a big part of coming to the University of Texas and doing this type of program was I wanted to make sure that students who, you know, by and large could not afford some of these wonderful private schools that are out there, we're going to get the same kind of education that kind of world class. We were just voted number one design school for public universities. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I love that because, you know, I think about very culturally institutions like Rhode Island School of Design, for example. Wonderful program, just expensive. You know, it's expensive people. and it's very white. It's, it's just very white. I love that you brought this up. So design as the big D versus a small D and to define design is like asking what is diversity. It's just really impossible to define it. But I do believe in general, the design world is part of a cultural elite space. It is not like an academic space. It's a cultural elite space where there's a tremendous amount of gatekeepers. And those gatekeepers are continuing a conversation that started a very, very long time ago that's not interrupted by what you're describing is 68% diversity at University of Texas, Austin. You know, I love talking to you about this because you care and you deploy design thinking in every single thing you do and every action you take, which a lot of people need to learn what design thinking is. If you don't know what design thinking is, please go on Google and type in quotes, design thinking, so you can learn about it. You can get all kinds of certification of design thinking because you can apply those strategies to every single thing that you do in life. I know what you're doing at University of Texas, Austin, in terms of helping people understand the importance of diversity and making changes to curriculum and bringing in additional voices, because these are the communities and people that are going to be creating the products and services that we use every day. I get that. I love it. Are you taking this message outside of University of Texas? Because again, when I think about schools that I would have loved to have gone to, but for a number of reasons, financial being number one, but number two, just walking into environments where you're not wanted because you're not white. How are you communicating these messages? And you're doing a lot of work. I mean, Doreen, you're doing so much. We just finished our sixth year. So school is relatively new in terms of education. One of the things we had to do is revamp a lot of curriculum in our programs as we took on this message and what we wanted to do. And, you know, decolonizing design was one on our design department and our arts entertainment, really, which is actually interesting about arts entertainment, a lot of gaming, immersive technology. 
that in itself, it just leads itself to be much more diverse only because everybody plays a game, people experience kind of these immersive experiences. So that was a little more easier design. We worked at it and it's absolutely working. So yeah, it's getting the message out. Rankings now, getting stories told, doing speeches, doing podcasts like this, telling people what we have, because now we have it. I would never purport to have said, okay, smoke and mirrors, you know, this is what we're going to do until we have it. And now I can speak very confidently that we're on the road. To me, it's not done. It's not like we sit back and be comfortable. I love the direction that we're going in. And I want to keep going in that direction. And everybody's gung-ho to make it. Bring in these kids, bring in their voices. They're inspiring because they come from so many different stories. Now, the way the University of Texas works is if you're in the top 6% of your public high school, you're automatically admitted to the university. You're not necessarily automatically admitted to the program that you want, but you're automatically admitted to the university. So in our program, we have probably over 50% of our students are that top 6%. These are bright kids. They're super smart, even though they come from all different types of high schools. So you've got these minds that are just amazing and giving them the format to change the world. They jump right on it, giving them the opportunity to do that. And having the professors that support that too, because we have to have professors that also understand what our students are going through. And so it's been a big change, probably in all the things I've done in my life, besides having my children, the most gratifying. When you say big change, what is the change? Are you talking about a mindset change where you have leadership that is now realizing they have a much more diverse student body, especially in the cultural elite design space? Is that what you mean? And there's sort of conversations that you have to have. Well, I mean, I accepted this job at the University of Texas because it was the University of Texas. And I knew that we could make that kind of change. And if I found the right people, which we have amazing faculty. I mean, seriously, like I look at this faculty and I thought, oh, my God, that was what has happened here. And I'm sort of curious. This is a question that I'm hearing a lot spoken by a lot of leaders. I mean, I'm a leader, too, and I sometimes wonder if this is true. What is the case for college in the creative space? And I put that now centered in the middle of artificial intelligence, where all people can now put their thought out there and have a piece of art made, which is incredible to me. I was reading a post on LinkedIn and a leader of one of the largest brands in the world was putting an image out of himself that he put on a platform that generated this bizarre picture of himself as some kind of a unicorn. And it struck me in its absolute monstrosity, but it also struck me that his excitement and joy and like liberation at being able to put an idea out there and not have to hire a designer or an artist to help him realize. And I thought, wow, not only is he vacant in terms of not recognizing his ego and this message he put on LinkedIn, but I thought, why are we putting kids through college right now if people can do what he's doing? You know, why are we having art schools? Why are we having design schools? What is the case to be made? I get this question a lot. And right now, here's the answer. Jobs are going to change. So maybe what a designer was at one point is going to evolve and change. Maybe they're just prop creators. But still, design is not art. It's problem solving. And that problem solving really requires critical thinking skills that AI doesn't have. You know, ChatGPT is not a critical thinker. So the output on how you do it might change because technology evolves. I mean, I remember when we did it before Photoshop. So there's an evolution that happens. So it's the technology is changing, 
But the problem solving, what is the problem we're really trying to solve? Who are we trying to solve that problem for? How do you get those insights? That's design. Design is a problem solving. What you're talking about is the artifact that has been put out. So the way you get to that artifact might change. The technology might change that. But you still got to really think about the underlying problem and underlying who are you designing this for? What is your audience? And so I think that's not changing. And I think that's why you send kids to school to learn those skills, to learn how to do that, to learn how to work collaboratively with people, because it takes more than one person to do that. And I think that's the reason. I love that answer because the critical thinking skills that I developed in college, if I hadn't developed them, I wouldn't have the career I have today. You know, I was working with brilliant teachers who invested in me. They recognized my talent and really pushed me hard. Didn't cut me slack all the time. Sometimes I got some slack cut, but most of the time I didn't. I mean, admittedly, to your point, I was a very good student. I was better than good. I was one of the top students and I was the first black student that came out of the design program where I went to college. I didn't know it at the time, though. I was just being me. I had no idea until later. I was like, wait, what? (laughs) You're kidding. I cannot wait to find out your impact because your impact is happening now. But I do believe the biggest impact won't be seen maybe for a little bit still, you know, and you're still working on it. You're not at the end. You're still, you know, in the middle of all this amazing, amazing work with young people. Your career is inspiring to me. And I love all the messages you shared. And I want everyone to connect with Toreen Lorenzo and read her amazing articles and interviews on Fast Company Magazine because she does highlight and champion and triumph women that you've never heard of that are having a huge impact. I mean, you talked to a woman the other day. She has a, a virtual and tal- virtual. Who is this woman? I mean, she's, she's so cool. Oh, yeah. my goodness. I was just like, she's amazing. And I thought, wow, I need to know about her. She's just kind of doing it. You know, she's just out there doing it. And you're I like, know. oh, my God, this stuff is awesome. And that's what we do. Women are just doing it. You were just doing it. But now women that are just doing it, we have too many tools now to not let people know what we're doing. I'm sorry. I mean, back in the old days, you have a reason for not sharing your success because you didn't have all the tools to do it. Now there is no excuse for a woman that's having tremendous success or having an impact for her not to be out there telling other people what's happening, men and women and other alike. Everyone needs to know the success of women like you and me and other women. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. My rapid fire questions. What do you wish you could do over if you could do over again? That could be career or not. I know it sounds foolish. I don't really live with regrets. Probably lived closer to my parents when I had my kids. Okay. Well, that's serious. That's real. That's real. Have you ever launched a business that failed? Oh, yeah. 
I mean, there's really? been things that haven't. Yeah, I mean, it, through frog and stuff, there's been things that haven't worked for lots of different reasons. It's okay. All right. So you're just like, you're comfortable with complete and utter failure and just move on. I don't believe in failure. I hate the term. I think, okay. you know, you right. scare people with the concept of failure. How do you learn? Right. You know, in science, every failure is a success. We get closer to the answer. Business, we treat it like, oh, you failed. But how are you going to learn? So I think we live in a continuous learning environment. You know, if your children come home and say, mom, I failed math, you don't jump up and down and go success. So it's a really kind of a weird terminology. We make people feel bad about it. I learned a lot and I didn't do it again. You know, you keep moving forward. You just keep moving forward. All right. So I'm going to ask you a question about books and music. I want to know what music you're listening to right now, because all of us creatives, we listen to a lot of music or podcasts. I do listen to a lot of music. So you will see me traveling around the country seeing Bruce Springsteen. Oh, my favorite. Yes. So you will see me doing that. I'm off tomorrow to Jazz Fest. Oh, excellent. My husband writes about music and we go see everybody. So I love it. And it's a big part of my life. I'm reading the book right now, How Not to Die, which I think is super interesting about plant-based eating because I am a plant-based eater, but I've never read this book and I love it. And before that, I read Shoe Dog, which was the Phil Knight book about Nike because I just saw the movie Air and I just wanted to know more about it. I had met Phil Knight many years ago, but never really thought about it. So that was kind of fun to do that. And before that, I read the Michelle Obama book. So my tastes are varied and all over. I love it. And my last question is, I notice you're wearing lipstick, but I always like to sometimes ask women, are you lip gloss or lipstick? I'm both. It really depends. Yeah, I'm both. I have both. Sometimes I'll put a base color on my lips of lipstick and then I'll gloss it over with some stuff. So I have both with me. When is the situation that you're wearing lip gloss though? Like when do you wear lip gloss? Usually if I have like an event to go to and I want to pop a little bit more, especially if it's nighttime. I mean, I do wear makeup. It's funny. And maybe that's my age category. You know, I'm not somebody who will just probably go out. I don't wear a lot, but I think I like going out in the world and it's like, oh yeah, I should probably have makeup on and look <laughs> a little, a little rosier. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I have one more question to ask you. Please tell me how you know Cher. I mean, you interviewed her. She's really just a wonderful human being whose heart is really with helping people. So maybe we drive on all of that. Yes, I interviewed her for Fast Company. I interviewed her at a conference. And so she's a lovely person. Lovely, lovely. Yeah, she's an activist, a human rights and social justice champion. She is someone that all famous people need to admire and look at because she's never given up. She's never given up. And she's done all of this before it was Vogue. So much of what she did, she was a a first mover in terms of what she did and how she did it. And in the face of a lot of adversity, just kept going forward. So I mean, my view is she is always to be admired for who she is and what she's done. Yeah. Thank you so much. Well, listen, everybody, thank you for joining us on the Honest Field Guide podcast. This is a wonderful conversation with Doreen Lorenzo. I will put in the show notes how to connect with her. She is a remarkable designing woman. Yes, she is. And I am Ginja. And I'm Doreen. And thank you so much for having me on the show. I mean, <laughs> I think we could have talked for another two hours, which we do from time to time. And so, we will, yeah, definitely. We don't will. don't All worry. Right. All right. <laughs> thank you, thank so, you much. so much. Okay, Doreen. Bye. Bye. Original music is written by and provided courtesy of Utah Carol. Follow Honest Field Guide on Instagram and Twitter. The opinions expressed on the Honest Field Guide are opinions only. Please do your own research.